Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, I want to thank, first of all, Steve Meeks for filling in for me last week and doing such a, a wonderful job. It was a, a great teaching that uh, is filled with insights. Uh, my wife and I enjoyed uh, some time away. We traveled down south and visited some, uh, some dear friends on the very southern border, border of Georgia. So we took a few days going down and took a few days coming back and had a really restful, wonderful time. So thank you, Steve, uh, for filling in. And, uh, but it's good to be back, especially for this Torah portion, Shof Team, which covers Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 21, 9. I'm not even going to begin to try to cover everything in this portion. There's just way too much. This portion alone could fill weeks of teaching. There's so many topics, so many different commandments and principles in here. Uh, but what I am going to do is address something that I have addressed several times in the past. That concerns the promised prophet. And I also want to focus in on something at the very end of the Torah portion that I have never really had an opportunity to delve into in any detail. So, we'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, today happens to be Friday the 13th uh, in August 2021. But on the Hebrew calendar, this is the fifth of the month Elul. Elul, that's what Elul looks like in Hebrew. This is the last month on the biblical calendar. Next month is Tishrei. On the first of Tishrei is Rosh Hashanah, or Yom Teruah, the the Feast of Trumpets, when uh, we are commanded to come together as a congregation, to to pray, to repent, to hear the blowing of the shofar, where we step away from the world for this holy day, this this, uh, special Sabbath, and that comes up, happens to start on Labor Day, Monday evening of Labor Day. But uh, Tishrei is a big deal. Tishrei contains Rosh Hashanah, and on the 10th day, it's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Five days later begins the week-long festival of Sukkot. And so as we prepare to go into Tishrei, we come to this month Elul. Elul is very unique. It's a very kind of a a mystical, spiritual month on the calendar because it's bringing the year to an end. And um, in the synagogues, every morning, starting on the second of Elul, after the morning prayers, the shofar is sounded in the synagogue. So every day, starting with the second of Elul, the shofar is blown in the synagogue. And finally, when you come to Rosh Hashanah, you come to the last trumpet, the last shofar, and it's blown. It was during the month of Elul that Moses was up on Mount Sinai the second time. And it was during this month that God revealed to him his uh, 13 attributes of mercy, which you find, I believe it's in Exodus chapter 34. It was also during this month, tradition teaches about 40 years later, that the spies died on the 17th of Elul, the wicked 10 faithless spies died during this month. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, it's almost as if during this month, God is wrapping up loose ends and preparing us for a new beginning. And one of the things about this month, uh, the word Elul, <clears throat> excuse me, it is Friday the 13th after all. <clears throat> okay, I think I got that frog out of my throat. 
<clears throat> but um, the commentaries really don't talk about what the word Elul even means. But the rabbis for, for centuries have seen it as an acrostic for Ani Lododi, Vododi Li. You see the Aleph, the Lamed, the Vav, and the Lamed beginning those four words. And these four words mean, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, which comes from the Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. I belong to my beloved. My beloved belongs to me. You know, as we approach Rosh Hashanah, we come to God as our judge, and he is our judge. But during the month of Elul, we recognize the fact that my judge is my beloved one, and I belong to him, and he's given himself to me. So as we approach this time of uh, strict and, and serious accountability to our God, our judge, Deep down, we have a secret, and that is that we know that he loves us and we love him. And this tension between these two things, that uh, we are so deeply loved by our Father and that we love him, it helps temper the fact we must stand before him in judgment, give an account of our lives. So uh, this tension is something we should feel all through this month. One of the things also it's done traditionally is that Salikot prayers are prayed. The Salikot means like a confession uh, and uh, asking of forgiveness for sins. You can get a whole book, a uh, prayer book, just of the Salikot prayers, and they're beautiful prayers. Prayers of confession, not only of our own sins, but the sins of our forefathers, our nation. And uh, so these are prayed and incorporated throughout the month. So I encourage you as we approach this holy Sabbath of Rosh Hashanah, that's just around the corner, that you prepare yourself and, um, and recognize that the fall holy days all are pictures of Messiah's return and the establishment of his, his kingdom, and that we approach these days in that spirit. So, moving on, I would like us to jump right into chapter 18, and there are four verses there I'd like us to focus on. Deuteronomy 18, starting with verse 15. Moses says, A prophet from your midst, from your brethren, like me, shall Adonai your God establish for you. To him shall you listen. According to all that you asked of Adonai your God in Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, on the day of the congregation, saying, May I no longer hear the voice of Adonai my God, and this great fire may I no longer see, so that I shall not die. Then Adonai said to me, They have done well in what they have said. I will establish a prophet for them from among their brethren, like you, like you, Moses, and I will place my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them everything that I will command him. We know that this prophet is Yeshua, our Messiah. <clears throat> but the rabbis have not always recognized that this prophet would be the Messiah. They thought he might be a different individual. But we know, looking back, that Yeshua is the one being prophesied here, the prophet like Moses. And if you look at the life of Yeshua, you'll see some parallels between him and Moses. Um, 
For example, at their birth, there was an attempt by the ruler to destroy the baby boys. That was happening in Egypt when Moses was born. It was happening in Judea at Yeshua's birth. Uh, Moses and Yeshua both spent time in Egypt and were called out of Egypt. Uh, <clears throat> both of them were rejected by the people they attempted to help. You recall Moses first tried to rescue a Jewish brother who was being beaten by an Egyptian slave. And um, when it was discovered, his, uh, some of the Jewish uh, brethren accused him. Who made you a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And uh, Yeshua was also rejected when he came to bring rescue. But just as Moses came back to Egypt and did bring great rescue, Yeshua will return and fulfill his promise of salvation to the world. So there, there are many, many parallels. But in verse 18... It says that I will place my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them everything that I will command him. This helps us understand some of the things Yeshua said and, and some of the things said about him. For example, in John 4, when Yeshua is speaking to the woman at the well, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She must have recognized that this prophet that was foretold is the Messiah. And Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. In John 12, 49, Yeshua says, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. In John 17, 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me. This is, John 17 is Yeshua's high priestly prayer in the garden, and uh, it's, it's an amazing prayer. And he's praying to the Father and said, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. There's a fascinating passage also in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. Um, the Judeans, the, the leaders in the south of Israel, sent some... Um, some Pharisees and um, some, I'm sorry, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John the Immerser, who are you? And so they came to him, and that's what they asked, who are you? And it goes on, it says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. So that was their first uh, question, really, because they're, they're looking for the Messiah. They knew it was about time for the Messiah to appear. So they thought John might be this Messiah, but he says, nope, I'm not the Messiah. Well, they also knew that there, the prophecy in Malachi that before the Messiah comes, Elijah the prophet would come. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. But they also knew this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 concerning the prophet. So they said to John, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Well, if he's not the Messiah, if he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet, who are you? So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So there was a fourth option. 
that they had not considered. And John says, I'm that fourth promised voice in the wilderness saying, make straight the ways of the Lord. Now I wanted to, start to, to, to ask this question. I sent it out in the Thursday update. When this is spoken by Moses, Moses refers to the fire on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. In verse 16, he says, according to all that you asked uh, of Adonai, your God, and Horeb on the day of the congregation, saying, the, the people are saying to Moses, may I no longer hear the voice of Adonai, my God, in this great fire, may I no longer see, so that I shall not die. Right before that verse in verse 15, and right after that verse in verses 17 and 18, Moses talks about this prophet. So why is verse 16 there? If verse 16 weren't there, you would not sense any break in the narrative. You would not think uh, something seems to be missing. Verse 16 seems to be completely superfluous to the conversation. So the people are complain, you know, Moses, you go talk to God. This fire and this, this noise and the thunder and the shakings, we're terrified. May we never experience such a thing again. You go talk to God and you come back and tell us what he said because we cannot tolerate this. And so God is basically saying, okay, that, that, that's, that's good. I accept what they're saying. They've spoken well. And so he tells them, I'll send another prophet. And he won't be one who's intimidating at all. There won't be fire and noise. He'll be a very quiet person, a very humble person, a very earthy person. And um, it'll be just the opposite of what you experience in Mount Horeb. Now we have to understand something. The God who appeared on Mount Horeb and spoke and terrified the people is the same God who appeared within Yeshua and spoke to the world through him. Same God. And he hadn't undergone any personality change. It was the same God, basically the same message. It was just couched in slightly different terms, but still the same heart, the same love, the same message. We need to understand something. When God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai and then continued to give more of it over the 40 years, those, those painful 40 years in the wilderness, what God was saying through the Torah, what God is saying through the Torah is this. He's saying, this is who I am. The Torah is not just a collection of rules. If you see it as a collection of rules, you've missed the spirit and the foundation with the Torah is. Yeah, it contains rules. But it's God saying, this is who I am. And I love you, and I want you to love me. I want us to have deep fellowship together, so you must understand who I am. I already know who you are. But for us to truly dwell in oneness, you need to draw closer. I've come down to the top of Mount Sinai. But you need to also arise. You need to, to make a tabernacle that I may dwell among you. 
And I want you to become more like me so we can truly be one. But this is who I am. I don't change, but you do need to change because I want you to draw close. And the way you draw close to me is by changing your hearts, changing the way you think, changing the way you see things, the way you make decisions. Your soul must be redeemed. It has to be saved. It has to be changed. And so the rules are there to express who God is and how we can become more like him and draw close to him. When Yeshua came to earth, it was the exact same motive. It was once again God saying, this is who I am. These these are my rules, but this is also the heart behind the rules. And I want you to come close to me. And Yeshua says, no one draws uh, under the Father except through me. And um, God wants us to draw close. But it's the same God, the same personality. You can think of it this way. Let's say you're on trial for something, and you're in the courtroom, and there is the judge, and the buck stops with the judge. What he says goes and everyone must address him as your honor. People stand when he comes in, and they sit only after he sits. They stand when he leaves because he is the final authority in that courtroom. But let's say you're invited to a barbecue, a cookout, and you go, and when you arrive, you find out it's the same judge who's throwing the cookout, who's having the cookout. And there he is in short sleeves with his apron on and he's, he's flipping burgers on the grill and he invites you over and he talks and laughs and asks about you. It's the same man. It's the exact same man, but the circumstances are different. When he's on the judge, in, uh, on the bench, wearing his robes and, and fulfilling his role as judge, your relationship to him is one thing, and you must relate to him on that basis. But we're in, you're in his backyard getting ready to burger that he's grilled, and you're talking and, and laughing and, and just being friends. Still the same man. But the, the mode of relation is a little bit different. You can think of God at Mount Sinai as the one, but then Yeshua here on earth as the other, but still the same personality. The problem with with this whole thing, though, is us. Um, The people were too terrified to draw close to God when he was on Mount Sinai. And then when Yeshua came, because he was so humble, since he was so human, since he was so earthy, they didn't respect him at all. So on the one hand, uh, it's too scary. On the other hand, who's this? Why should we even respect him? And so they reject him and they crucify him. The problem is not with God. The problem is with us. We must know God in a spiritual way. We must come to him on his terms. And uh, this month of Elul is a great month to really recalibrate our souls, and our relationship with God. I want us to move on now, and this will be tied together 
more later, but I want us to move on to the, the unresolved murder that we find in chapter 21, right at the tail end of our Torah portion. This is what it says. Deuteronomy 21, starting with verse 1. If a corpse, and the word for corpse here is an interesting word, it's the word halal, which has another meaning, which means to profane. Um, it can also mean almost to curse. But if a halal, if a corpse will be found on the land that Adonai your God gives you to possess it, fallen in the field, it was not known who smote him. So obviously this corpse didn't die of natural causes. He is a murder victim. It says, your elders and judges. Now the name of our Torah portion is Shoftim, and that's the word used here, judges. Because our Torah portion begins with the appointment of judges, Shoftim, and officers. So here at the end of the Torah portion, we once again see one of the roles of these Shoftim. So your elders and your judges shall go out and measure toward the cities that are around the corpse. So here in the, in the graphic, <clears throat> we have a, a corpse. There's a chalk outline there. And so we have some cities around. And so these judges and elders, they'll measure from the corpse to the cities that surround it. So they'll, they'll, they'll measure th- this distance here. And they'll mark that down. They'll measure this distance here and mark it down. They'll measure this one and measure this one. And then they realize, okay, this is the town here that is the closest to the corpse. So the rest of the other three towns, uh, there's nothing for them to do at this point. But now this town becomes the focus because it's closest to the corpse. The corpse is closest to it. Now, only in the Torah, only God can come up with something that is this profound and amazing uh, and unique. And at first, it seems just really odd, kind of weird. What does this corpse have to do with this town? What does the town have to do with this corpse? It was just some guy who's passing through, maybe, and... uh, Somebody mugs him and kills him, and so this town must now take responsibility for the corpse. But don't you feel something down here in your heart that says, yeah, I kind of recognize what God's talking about? Because I think with all of us, as we think over our lives, there are some souls that fell near us. And we think, maybe if I had been more attentive, if I had been more involved, more alert, if I had been more the person God wants me to be, maybe that soul would not have fallen. Now, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. And, um, and sometimes people fall near us, and there's, there's no preventing it, that nothing we could have done. Well, we're just talking about the cases here where there's something you could have done. So let's continue and see what lessons we can learn from this. Verse 3. It shall be that the city nearest the corpse, the elders of that city shall take a heifer, with which no work has been done, which is not pulled with a yoke. 
the elders of that city, now notice the judges are no longer really a part of this. They are the ones who measure the distance and identify the city, then their, their role basically is over. But the elders now, they're the ones who take up the responsibilities. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a harsh valley, which cannot be worked and cannot be sown. So it's a worthless piece of property. And this valley is called a nachal, and the word nachal also means like a wadi or a, a riverbed. But apparently, this riverbed is, uh, is useless because you can't quite get to it because the valley is too steep and too harsh. You can't sow it because the, the walls are too steep. So you have this potential, this place of water, but you can't really use it. It cannot be worked, cannot be sown, and they shall axe the back of its neck, or your translation may say, and they shall break the neck. All of that is just one word in Hebrew. It's the word va'arfu. Va'arfu. Oraf is the word for neck, for the back of the neck especially. It simply says they shall neck the, uh, the, the heifer. And this word is used in other places to break the neck of an animal. And, uh, but it's just one word, and how it was broken, whether it was probably done with an axe, because you can't really break a, a heifer's neck with your bare hand, so they probably had to use something. But uh, this translation says they axe the back of its neck, even though the word axe is not there in the original. They shall break the back of its neck, axe the back of its neck. They shall neck the animal. They're going to kill it, and they're going to kill it by doing something to its neck. In the valley... The Kohanim, now the priests are present. The Kohanim, the offspring of Levi, shall approach. For them is Adonai your God chosen to minister to him and to bless with the name of Adonai. And according to their word shall be every grievance and every plague. All the elders of that city who are closest to the corpse shall wash their hands over the heifer that was axed in the valley or who's, who, was, who was necked in the valley. They shall speak up and say, Our hands have not spilled this blood, and our eyes did not see. Atone for your people, Israel, that you have redeemed, O Adonai. Do not place innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel. Then the blood shall be atoned for them. You shall remove the innocent blood from your midst when you do what is upright in the eyes of Adonai. A very strange procedure, isn't it? A very odd ritual. So let's see what we can make of this. First of all, let's know something about the heifer. It's one that's never worked, has never worn a yoke. And so it's kind of assumed this heifer is going to be young. Um, Because normally when a heifer is older, it's going to be worked and wear a yoke and be used for some useful purpose. But this one has never worked, has never worn a yoke. And they're going to kill it. So we see here this cow, its potential is lost. The offspring it would have produced, it's not going to produce. The work it might have done is not going to be done. The milk it might have given, it's not going to be given. The yoke it might have worn, it's never going to wear a yoke. It's going to be killed. So we see here an utter waste of potential. Now, where does this take place? It takes place in a valley that cannot be worked and cannot be sown. 
And this valley, as I mentioned, is called a Nahal, which has to do with a, a riverbed. Again, totally wasted potential. Because when you find water, a place where water can be, that is a valuable commodity in the Middle East. But this is a valley that can't be worked, can't be sown. It's utterly wasted potential. And then think about the corpse. This corpse did not die of old age or of illness or any natural causes. It was murdered, which means its potential was utterly lost. Whatever years remained to that person were robbed from him, whatever he might have accomplished with his or her life, now it's all lost, it's all gone. And then what does it say about the elders? The elders come and after this heifer has been killed, they wash their hands over the heifer, the dead body of this heifer, And they speak up and say, our hands have not spilled this blood. Our eyes did not see this guy coming through. We didn't see it. We had nothing to do with it. We're not responsible. Don't blame us. And maybe there is no blame to share. But then maybe there is. Maybe if their hands had been more occupied with the things of God, they'd been more occupied doing his will, serving the people under their care. There wouldn't have been a corpse to even discover. Maybe if their eyes had been more on the things that God wanted them to see, if they'd been looking more carefully at the things around them and seeing reality, and, and, and seeing things through God's eyes and, and looking into the word and, and, um, and just simply seeing the needs around them, maybe there wouldn't have been a corpse. Maybe there would have, but then again, maybe there wouldn't have. And I think the entire purpose for this entire ritual is because God wants to drive home to the elders of that city that was closest to where this corpse, this man, was murdered. He wants them to think, did you do everything you could have? Were you watching? Were you doing the work of an elder, of an overseer? And so that's the question I have to ask myself when people fall around me. Maybe I'm perfectly honest there's nothing I could have done. There is no way I could have been aware of the need. But then again, maybe I should have been praying more for that person. Maybe I should have been more actively involved in that person's life, engaging my hands with doing things to that individual and looking at that person, really seeing them and recognizing what they need. And again, not trying to make you feel guilty. That is not my job. But I want us to wake up. I want us to wake up and really ask this question. And I'm going to give you a strategy for how you can be more alert and, and be more engaged in those potential corpses that surround us. But what we see in all of these things 
our unfulfilled potential. The elders had the potential, possibly, of preventing a murder. This valley had the potential of being sown and being used, but it, it, it wasn't. This heifer had the potential of doing work and producing milk and producing offspring, but it was never reached. This murder victim had the potential of living a fulfilled life, but it was cut short. Everything about the story is what could have been versus what was. And that is always the tension in all of our lives, isn't it? What could have been versus what is. I shared before what, uh, how the rabbis put it, and, and um, I, I've heard one rabbi put it this way. He says on Judgment Day, the best way he could describe it is this. And again, Rosh Hashanah is around the corner, and it's a time that's a rehearsal for the Day of Judgment. And that's why we need to be engaged in it. And he says, Judgment Day would be kind of like this. You know, uh, it used to be, when I was a kid, you could go to the movies and see a double feature. In other words, you saw two movies for the price of one. And uh, so he says, Judgment Day is kind of like a double feature. So you, you sit down, <clears throat> and... Uh, and God plays back your life. You see your whole life, the way you lived it. And when it's over, you look at it and think, oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, I did some good things there. Um, yeah, it was, okay, could have been better, but yeah, that was good. But then comes the second feature. And the second reel shows our life as what it could have been had we lived it fully for the Lord. And then after we see the second feature of what our life could have been, that's when we can begin to experience pain. We think, as good as my life was, oh, if only I'd been more attentive to what God said. If only I'd been more attentive to the needs of my spouse, my kids, my neighbors, my community. If only I had been more attentive to God's word. If only I had invested in his kingdom more instead of laying up so many treasures for myself on earth. If only my heart had been more invested in his heart. If only I'd known him better. I think this is why Paul says that we should study to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen who don't need to be ashamed. Because I think the pain of the afterlife is the pain of shame because of what we could have been, but we failed to be. Because we're just short-sighted. Because we're too deaf. We are too distracted by this world. We're too busy doing what was right in our own eyes instead of doing what is right in his. Now, in the Thursday update, I asked you uh, to compare this heifer with two other animals in the Torah because it bears resemblance to two other animals. And for those especially sharp stu students of Torah, you would just say, wait a minute, there are three other animals in the Torah with which this heifer bears resemblance. And of course, the first animal is going to be the red heifer. The red heifer. And when you read about the red heifer in Numbers chapter 19, we are told there that this heifer is one uh, that has never borne a yoke, just like this heifer here that is killed in the valley by having its neck broken. 
Numbers 19.2 says, This is the statue of the Torah that Adonai has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. So, like the red heifer, this heifer has never had a yoke on it. Now, the word for heifer is different in the two passages. The red heifer is the para aduma. Para means a heifer, aduma means red. But this heifer is called an egla. It's the, uh, the feminine form of the word egel, uh, like in the egel zahav, the golden calf. So this is a different word. <clears throat> it also suggests that maybe this is a calf. But uh, still, it is a female. It is a, some, uh, an ox, probably. Uh, but it's, and it has never worn a yoke. Now, what is the purpose of the red heifer? As you read through Numbers 19, you'll know that the red heifer, its purpose, after its body was burned to ash, the ashes are collected, mixed with water, and the sprinkling with this water containing ashes of the red heifer were for the purification of those who are ritually impure. So it addresses impurity. Now, what other animal does this heifer resemble? Well, pay attention to where the heifer is killed. It's killed in a place that is barren, basically useless. It's unfruitful. It cannot be worked. It cannot be sown. And so it kind of reminds me of the goat for Azazel. Because the goat for Azazel in Leviticus 16 on Yom Kippur, the high priest confesses all the sins, willful sins, all the sins of Israel on the head of this goat. And then it's taken by a man, a designated man, out into the wilderness, an unfruitful place, a place that you don't sow and you don't reap, a land you can't really work. He's taken out into the wilderness. And we know from tradition that this goat is pushed over a cliff into a valley. So it's like the goat for Azazel, which is killed out in the wilderness. In Leviticus 16, 21 and 22 is where this is described. And the last verse there, verse 22, says, The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now the word for wilderness is midbar. But the word for a remote area is Gezerah. And it's not used very often in Scripture. In fact, this might be the only place. I'm not sure. But the word Gezerah means solitary, desolate, and infertile. It's a place that cannot be worked, it cannot be sown. And what's the purpose of the goat for Azazel, the scapegoat? It addresses the issue of sin. It bears the sins of the people into the wilderness. Now, can you figure out what that third animal is to which this, uh, this heifer in our passage is similar? All right. There's only one other animal in the Bible who had its neck axed or broken, using that word aruf, and that is the firstborn donkey. And this is found in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 13, 13, it says, Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall 
axe its neck, break its neck. You will uh, roof it. You will neck it. So this is the only other animal they're commanded to do this to. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And also in Exodus 34.20, again, it refers to redeeming the firstborn of a donkey by sacrificing a lamb. And if you don't redeem that donkey with a lamb, you axe its neck. So, why do you axe the back of the donkey's neck? Because you failed to redeem it. It addresses failure. Failure to obey God's word. And a donkey was always worth far more than a lamb. And why anyone would not redeem the firstborn of a donkey with a lamb, but would instead axe the back of its neck, makes no sense to me whatsoever. But it's because of failure to obey the scriptures. Now what's interesting about these three animals is not only that they each are, are kind of come together in this, this, this heifer here in our passage, who has um, never worn a yoke like the red heifer, is killed in a desolate place like the scapegoat, and the back of its neck is axed like the unredeemed donkey, the firstborn donkey. But here's something else that's interesting. If you paid attention to the references I gave you, you know that the firstborn donkey is described in Exodus chapter 13. The goat for Azazel is described in Leviticus chapter 16. And then the red heifer is described in Numbers chapter 19. Now, I think the chapter numbers are coincidental, 13, 16, 19. But going from Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers, I don't think that's accidental at all. Because you see this progression from bottom to top. And the only reason we started with with this, with the red heifer, is because we're starting Deuteronomy and we're kind of working our way backwards. But think about this. The firstborn donkey, its neck is axed because of failure. The goat for Azazel is offered because of sin. The red heifer's ashes are used, and it's killed, and its ashes are used because of impurity. Failure is sin, which makes us impure. And so these three themes, these three major themes in Scripture all come together here in Deuteronomy 21. And I think God is trying to get our attention and say there are people out there who are impure, who have sin in their lives, who consider themselves failures and to a great degree have failed grossly in their lives. But you're the elders of the city. You're the people whose hands should be engaged and eyes should be seen. And are you doing your job? Again, we cannot hold ourselves responsible for every individual out there who, who dies without ever coming to awareness of who God is and giving their lives to God. But I'm sure there's some people out there for whom God may hold us responsible. So it comes down to this question. How is it we are to share the gospel with the world? 
This is something I have been thinking about for the last 20 years. And as you know, I'm, uh, if you've been listening for any amount of time, I was born and raised in the evangelical church, in the Baptist church, where evangelism was uh, front and center in everything we did. And we were taught all different kinds of ways to share the gospel. Kids were taught to use the, I think it was called the gospel glove or the good news glove. We had these plastic gloves and and that each finger on the glove is a different color. One, one finger was black to represent how we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then one finger is red to represent the blood of Yeshua. And then there's a finger that's green to represent the new life we have through him. One was gold to represent the rewards we get in heaven. And I, there was a, a fifth one. I forget what it was. I wasn't a very good student. And, you know, we were taught the Roman road. You know, use Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, and 10.19. And you walk people through these verses and get them to accept Jesus as their Savior so they don't go to hell when they die. Um, Tracts were given to us called the Four Spiritual Laws. And I remember passing these out in, in college and sharing them and and you know, praise God, some people's lives are transformed because their heart response to good news was such that they embraced God wholeheartedly. They threw themselves into his word and devoted themselves completely to serving him. Praise God for that. But many times I saw people inoculated against the gospel because of sometimes the gimmicky attempts of trying to save souls. It's kind of like this. We were trying to get people to pray the prayer. A certain prayer we'd lead them in. If you prayed this prayer, then you were saved. If you didn't pray the prayer, you're going to hell for eternity when you die. And we were trying to save them from hell. To us, hell was everything because everybody's going there unless you're one of the fortunate few who happen to hear me talk to you about my good news glove. And uh, if you don't listen to what I have to say, then I'm sorry, I've got to move on to the next person. There are people going to hell, and I need to get to them. We try to get people to adopt our theology. You have to understand the word the way I understand it. You have to believe what I believe, or you may not be saved. We saw in our imaginations a line in the sand. If you're on this side of the line, you're going to hell for eternity. But if we can just get you across that line... You're in like Flint, you're going to heaven when you die, and nothing can change that. We're trying to lead them to the Lord. Oh, if only we did. If only we would have done that. And then we wanted to get them into church. And somehow I knew, even from the early days, there's something flawed about this approach. And again, it's taken me many years to rethink and try to, to think, how is the gospel to be shared? In the Baptist church, we'd often talk about winning souls. But the only reference to winning souls is in the book of Proverbs, where Solomon writes, he who wins souls is wise. Well, how did they win souls a thousand years before Yeshua came and died on the cross for our sins? Soul winning is something we needed to completely rethink. So what I've done 
is uh, it's what I call corpse prevention. We want to prevent the corpses falling around us. How do we share the good news with people around us? And as Messianic believers, I know for many of us, things have changed, but we've never really, we've really, never really wrestled with how do we share the gospel. So here's the familiar way versus the Torah way. Instead of getting them to pray the prayer, this is getting them to talk to God. It's getting them to start to pray. Instead of trying to save a person from hell, we want to rescue them from sin. Now, how do we do these things? First of all, become a friend. Yeshua is called a friend of sinners. When I believed the whole world was going to hell for all of eternity, I didn't have time to be a friend of a sinner. But now I can be more patient. And I can become a friend of someone who doesn't know the Lord, someone who's, who doesn't know their left hand from their right. <clears throat> I can be patient, take time, be a friend to them, get to know them. And after a while, they can begin to trust me. And once they do, they're going to start sharing issues in their lives and say, I don't know what to do. At that point, you say, well, would you like to know what the, the Word of God says about that? Well, yeah. And then you can say, well, this is what the Word of God says about your situation. Why don't you try this? And it'll work every single time. And before you know it, this person is beginning to consult the Word of God and ask you to help them. And they're going to find themselves talking to God, and they'll wake up one day and say, once I was blind, but now I see. I, don't, I didn't see any line in the sand, but somehow my life is transformed. But we have to take time to be friends. Instead of getting people to adapt my, adopt my theology, I want them to meet my theos. Theos is the Greek word for God. I want them to meet God. Theology is something we sort through and wrestle with and reform and, and adjust our entire lives. And one of the things I realized that as long as I was an evangelical, I really, even though I said in my lips that I believe, that I, that I trusted God for my salvation, I really didn't. I trusted my theology for my salvation. If I had the right theology, I saved. If my theology's wrong, mm, then I'm on shaky ground. It was only after a few years of studying the Torah I began to realize I'm not saved by my theology. I'm not saved by what I think about Yeshua. I'm saved by what he did, not by what I think about it. And my theology is something I can adjust and, and bring into closer conformity to the truth all through my life. That's not my theology. My theology can be an idol that I worship instead of God. Your theology is not your savior. Yeshua is your savior. God is your savior. I want people to know my God. Theology can take care of itself as they walk with him and study his word. I'm not trying to get people to cross a line, but to draw near the light. One direction is darkness, the other direction is light. Won't you walk with me? And this is how you share the gospel. Come, walk with me. Walk with me. Instead of just trying to lead them to the Lord, I want to accompany them to his kingdom. When you come to his kingdom, you meet the king. <clears throat> and it's like, walk with me. Let's walk together. Let's walk out this life. Let's be friends. 
And uh, I want you to meet my king. I want you to meet my Theos, my God. It used to be we would try to get them into church. I wanted to get them to be the church, to be the people of God. Church is not a place. You know, Beth the Coon is not a place where we try to bring sinners. It's a place for believers. And I think one of the reasons the church is dying all over the world is because most Christians have thought, if I can just get that sinner into church, then they'll hear the gospel. That is completely upside down and backwards. It's not the shepherd's job to reproduce sheep. It's the sheep's job to reproduce sheep. And the sheep come into the community to be fed, to get healthy, and to grow. But then they go out into the world to make more sheep. You don't bring a sinner into the church to get saved. You go into the world to take the good news to them. It is so utterly backwards. And I know some of my pastor friends are shocked when I tell them I, we're not a gospel-preaching church, Beth the Coon. They're just shocked. I said, we believe in the gospel of all our hearts. And we share the gospel out there in the world where people need to hear it. But when the believers come together, why should I keep trying to teach them the gospel that they already know? I want to teach them the word of God. I want to feed them. I want to strengthen them. I want them to become healthy. I want them to be convicted about things in their lives they need to change. And I want to feed the sheep. Yeshua says, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. Not continue to get them to try to buy a product they've already purchased. So, I don't do sales pitches in the teachings. I want to feed sheep. I want to give you good food. I want you to go out there and take the light to the world, not to bring the world into the church building. That is not our goal. So how do we do this? Steve shared in one of his Tuesday newsletters just a few weeks ago about how I shared this model with the leaders of our home groups uh, not too, too long ago. And I've determined since that I want to share it with you. I want this to be Beth DeCoon's way, method, model of sharing the gospel with the world. And I think you're going to find it very organic, very natural, and very effective. So, first of all, understand what the Torah way is. Relearn what it is to share the gospel. Especially about trying to save people from hell. Hell is not the problem. In fact, the scriptures would indicate hell's part of the solution. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem right here and now. People need saved from sin. And so immediately salvation can begin to exert itself as we begin to walk free of sin. So here's the prayer. Here's what I want you to pray. And in your home groups, after you hear this teaching, I want you to spend some time discussing this and then take some time of silence to just really make this your prayer. So here's our prayer. First of all, ask the question, who needs me? Now, usually if somebody asks that question, they're very depressed, maybe suicidal. Who needs me? That's not how I mean this question to come across. The emphasis on this question is the who. Who needs me? Because I assure you, somebody out there does. So to ask God, Father, 
Who is it out here that needs me? Not my brother, not my sister, not someone else, Beth the Coon, not someone else in my family or my community. Who is the one who needs me? Now, get this straight. Every one of us is in a different place in our walk with God. Each of us sees some particular facet of God that others don't. Each of us reflects his light in a certain way that others don't. Each of us has a soul shaped in a unique way that God made us that's completely different from every other person. And so we're asking God, who is the one whose soul is the same shape that I can be the key to bring your good news to them? I want that person. Who is it, Father, who needs me? Send me someone to whom I can be a friend. Whom I can be a friend. I, me. Who can I be a unique friend to? I can't be a friend with everybody. Some people, God bless them, we're just so different. They're good people, and I'm trying to be a good person, but we're so different, we just don't have much in common. But there are other people with whom my soul clicks. Lord, send me that person. Don't send me the one who most needs God, but the one who most needs me. Now, that sounds weird. Let me explain. You may know some guy who's strung out on drugs, who's riddled with disease, who's lived a life of crime, and they really need God. And they may need God a whole lot more than your next door neighbor. But we're praying, God, send me the person who needs me. That derelict over there who's strung out on cocaine and crack. He needs you a lot more than my neighbor does. But Lord, my neighbor is the one who needs me because I am the one whose soul can click with theirs, who I can bring you to and introduce you to and introduce them to you in a unique way. So don't look for the most sinful person, the person who's most lost. Ask God to send you the one who needs you. Draw someone to my light, because the light of God shines through each individual in a unique way. Who's the one who needs the light you give? Send me someone who's ready for truth. And all of us have a different grip on the truth, some a greater degree than others, but who's ready to hear the truth from you and your understanding of it? Send me someone with a similar soul. Send me someone who needs my strength. And you have strengths I don't. I have strengths you don't. But someone needs the strengths you have. Ask God to send you that person. Send me someone who will see you in my imperfect life. All of us are so imperfect. But the only tools God has to use are imperfect ones. And he's turned the world upside down with imperfect tools. So you're an imperfect tool. Got it. But even your imperfections, God can use to reach a particular unique soul that none of us, none of the rest of us can. Father, you've prepared me for this, and I am ready to serve you by serving the one you send me. So ask God to send you that unique person.
Who's the person that all your life up to this point God's preparing you to meet? And I really want us at Beth Tacoon and those of you who listen outside of Beth Tacoon to really begin to take this to heart. In the dark days ahead, people need light. There are potential corpses everywhere. And we need to keep ourselves busy and our eyes and minds alert. So if there is a soul that God's called you to reach to, pray that God will connect you and that that soul can come to know the good news and come to know our Messiah. This is the month of Elul. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. It could also be translated, I am for my beloved. My beloved is for me. And when Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, he took something very private and intimate, his love for this girl, this romance for this girl. And he writes it out and blasts it over the centuries around the world in the book of Solomon. Each of us has a unique relationship with God, our beloved, with our Savior. Each of us is uniquely and especially loved by him in return. There are others who need to know that as well. So in this month of Elul, let's begin to be the lights of the world God's called us to be. So here are your discussion questions for this week. This month, Elul, is the last month of the year. What are you doing this month to prepare yourself for Rosh Hashanah? A new beginning. Second, we often think of Messiah as priest and king, but how does he fulfill the role of prophet? Because we talked about how Moses said, God's going to send you a prophet like me. How does Yeshua fulfill this role of a prophet? What insights do you have concerning Deuteronomy 21, 1-9? This is about the unsolved murder. What insights do you have? Because I know as you're hearing me talk and as you discuss this, each of you is going to gain some insight that the others don't have. So I want you to share those insights with your group. And how could you apply them to your own life? And what failures in your own life is it not too late to remedy? That whole story of Deuteronomy 21, 1-9 is about failure, lost potential. And so with this question, what failures in your own life is it not too late to remedy? Don't feel pressed you have to share that with the group unless you really feel led to. But I want you to really think about that in your own life. And that's something you can, some business you can transact with God there. And then last of all, take time in your group to review the Torah way of sharing the gospel. And then take some time to silently meditate on this prayer. Just silently meditate on it and to pray it. And to really begin every single day to ask God, Father, who needs me? Send that person. Okay? So let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, what a privilege it is to be your child. So, Father, I pray, if we love you, if we are proud of you, if we are honored to be your kids, then, Lord, save us from being ashamed to introduce people to you. Lord, I pray you would lead us each to the unique individual to whom we are uniquely compatible so that we can introduce them to you. 
so that they can also say with us, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And I ask this for the sake of your kingdom. In Yeshua's name, amen.